It is Hardline. It's the final segment here, and we have three guests in studio. I think this is the most people we've had in studio since COVID. And we are talking about Assemblyman Pat Burke firing three of his staffers. Now, this has gotten a lot of press. You've probably seen it in the news, on TV. It's gone as far as the New York Post. Well, we have the three in studio, Matt Deering, Nicole Goliath, and Brendan Keeney. And I'm going to let them tell the story. I feel like me would just be getting in the way. That was bad English. Sorry. I would just be getting in the way. So, Matt, we'll start with you. Where this story starts and take us from there. And the three of you chime in when, uh, when necessary. But take us through how this accurately happened. And then at the end, also respond to um, the Assemblyman's statement. Sure thing. Well, first thing, Joe, I want to thank you for having us on. You know, we're three... 20-somethings, and um, I appreciate you giving us a platform to tell the whole story about what actually happened. So obviously, you know, everybody's been rocked by the shooting last week, and um, on Sunday, uh, Mr. Burke reached out to Brendan and I about the potential to give, his desire really, to give a fiery floor speech in the well of the assembly denouncing the great replacement theory, white supremacy, and even going so far as to call out local people who had engaged in pushing this conspiracy theory, people who have, you know, engaged in apologetics for the, you know, civil war and the Confederacy and things like that. So Brendan and I met up at about eight o'clock that night. For three hours, we sat on his balcony, worked on a research document. You know, I pulled quotes from old secession speeches that were given in the South just before, you know, the Civil War. Brendan pulled a a history of the Great Replacement Theory, as it's mostly talked about in the media uh, recently. And we sent the document to Pat, and we felt really, really good about it. Um, And then the next morning, we reached out with the document, and, you know, we got a, I'll take a look at it. We reached out again. Um, again, trying to see what was going to go on, if, if he was going to be giving a speech. We got no response. And then Elise Stefanik sent a tweet out, which we thought deserved to be criticized by somebody from Western New York. And obviously, we're in a position to influence an assemblyman to say something about it. We sent him a mock tweet in response to hers. And the first real response we got all day was, we're not doing that. We need to have a team meeting. So the three of us were the only three in the office. Our chief of staff, who's still on staff at the office today, she'd been out the previous week and that Monday was working from home. She'd been out with COVID. He called the three of us. And the first question was, why were we on lunch at the time we were on lunch? Keep in mind, this is the first time he's addressed the three of us as a group after the shooting. First question was, why are you on lunch at 1.50? He said, well, you know, we always take lunch at 1.00. Then the next question was to me, was if I had figured out the itinerary for the president's visit and if he would be able to get FaceTime with Joe Biden. I told him it didn't seem likely because he was going to be meeting with, you know, statewide officials, the congressman, uh, the majority leader, Senator Kennedy, the people who represented the area. And so the conversation then from that point moved to a discussion about the conversations in the assembly and the caucus that day. And apparently the response is going to was planned to be lots of what Pat called policy specifically for black people. They want to do housing for black people. This is these this is what he said, direct quote. They want to do housing for black people, they want to do jobs programs for black people, 
They want to do education policy for black people. They want to do food policy for black people. So we need to stick to our program. Um, and then I was given a direction to focus on getting um, people together to circulate petitions for an independent party so he could have a second line on the ballot in November. Nicole was asked to research a bill about rooting out extremism in government as though the problem that we have with extremism is one that can wait until people get a position in government and told Brendan to continue pushing out on the previous press plan an op-ed about a bill that we have to attempt to decriminalize psilocybin for use in the mental health care field. And um, we tried to push back a little bit. We said, you know, we talked over the weekend. Obviously, we referenced the Sunday phone call. Even a text message thread that we all had where I had an idea to say, hey, you know, people in South Buffalo, West Seneca, Orchard Park, I think they get a bad rap around the rest of Erie County. I think, frankly, for me as the community relations director, I was the guy on the phone and talking to these constituents every day. And we believe that the people in these neighborhoods could have been given an opportunity to be called to a higher virtue to prove the people who criticize them wrong and say, you know what, somebody can come down here and say white supremacy is bad and we don't support it. And we've all got an opportunity to come out and agree with that, which seems like a pretty non-controversial statement. And the words were, I'm not giving up my seat to Sandy Magnano for this issue. In so, his office, the three of you were there for the statement or is this a one-on-one -on -one statement to you? The, all three of us were there on this phone call. And he said in this phone call, it was all about not giving up his seat. So he's more, so he was concerned with losing his seat in the assembly. It was no. a very, it was a very me, it was a very what about me kind of conversation, which we found very disheartening, especially since it was the first time he addressed us as an office um, since the shooting took place. It was all about what we need to do, what our office needs to do, about the uh, legislative priorities we had uh, prior to the shooting, those were going to remain, and that he didn't, he didn't seem ready or willing uh, to stick his neck out for this issue, which we found, uh, you know, bizarre. Um, and it was a complete 180 from the previous night before where he had basically said he wants to go scorched earth and call, uh, you know, certain people out by name who are kind of pushing this hateful rhetoric. Uh, so we just didn't feel comfortable with the direction that his office, that, that he was going um, on, you know, policy towards this. And I'm sorry, I know I said I wasn't going to, I didn't want to step in too much, but the night before his language was, I'm going to go, I'm going to stop the pe these people with hateful rhetoric. He was all. He said, I want to give a speech on the floor, not in, not a speech in front of the black caucus, you know, where frankly it's comfortable for, again, maybe this is something your listeners aren't used to necessarily hearing on this network, but you know, it's easy for a white person to go in front of a bunch of black and brown people and talk about how bad racism is. It's a lot more difficult to go to a community where people, you know, I spent a lot of time in South Buffalo. Pat and I, before I was ever an employee, and I think I maybe should have said this first, I've been friends with this guy since 2017. So this wasn't just about a work disagreement. This was like, a friend. I felt a friend was not respecting my views, not only as a staffer, but as a friend. And, um, you know, the people who need to hear this conversation most are probably a lot of the people who are listening to this network, a lot of the people who are in these communities, because, you know, he said he didn't want to be a white savior. A white savior is a person who goes to a minority community to try to save them from maybe themselves. 
a white savior isn't a person who goes to their own community and says, hey, we got a problem that we got to address. And that's what we told them. We said, we want you to address this problem in your community. We don't need you to go. I don't want you to go to Jefferson. I mean, you should show up. You should go to the site and pay your respects. But I don't want you to go to Jefferson and talk about how bad white supremacy is. I want you to go to Cass Park and talk about how bad white supremacy is. You know what I mean? That's that's what we told him we wanted him to do. And he said, in no uncertain terms, stick to the program. We're not doing this. So after he said, expressed his fears of losing his seat, where did the conversation go after that? I mean, essentially it ended. I was given my directive about petitions. Brendan was told to push out the op-ed. Nicole was told to research a, it's an old Tammany Hall commission that was designed to root out corruption. And he said, well, this is how we'll get rid of extremism in government. Um, You know, we had a book that we had to read for work. It's called Plunkett of Tammany Hall. It's like a collection of short speeches by this guy named George Washington Plunkett. He was a big Tammany guy. I think he held three offices at once at one point. And the biggest takeaway I think that we got out of that book is that when people need help, ultimately as a politician, if you want to be successful, you help them. And Plunkett talks about in the book, when there's a fire, he gets every Tammany man to get clothes and they go down and they pass out clothes to the people whose house burnt down. And yet after a shooting happened in our city, we were told to get volunteers together to get him on the ballot for an independent line. Plunkett would have said, go hand out groceries. Right. So. And then that led to your conversation with him on Tuesday morning. So we, the conversation ended. The three of us felt, I mean, demoralized. We, We sat in shock, honestly, looking at each other with no, not really saying anything. And... We said, you know, we think we can have a conversation with him still and and change his mind. Um, But, you know, there were we were all like really disappointed because Brendan and I were very proud of the document that we'd put together. We thought we were about to do something really, really important. Um, Not that we don't think we do important stuff every day. But the next day he calls me as I'm on my way into work asks me about the petitions and I tell him, hey, I need just a second. I'm on my way to the office. I can stop and look at the calendar when I get there. My first question again is about time. It's, did you tell Alyssa, our chief of staff, that you were going to be late, which of course I had. And then the conversation started and um, I told him, you know, Pat, I think with what's going on right now, it could be hard for us to get volunteers together because they're probably going to think there's something more important going on. And he says to me condescendingly on the phone, he goes, well, we're going to try because all my colleagues are going to have a second ballot line this fall and they're going to know what my team wasn't doing. And I said, you know, respectfully, Pat, I think people see what we're not doing right now. And I said, you know, the team after that call, and I did like, again, they asked me to kind of, if anybody was going to talk to him about this, it was going to be me because I was the most personally aggrieved Again, because I'm a black guy. My grandfather was an NAACP president in Kentucky in the late 50s and 60s. So if anybody was going to talk about it, it was going to be me. And I said, listen, we're feeling demoralized. We really think we should do more. And he denied having said anything in the Monday conversation, which one of the things I did forget is that it was reported in the New York Post. It's something we've told every reporter. He did, in fact, mock Monica Wallace's plans to create either a uh, working group or task force to tackle white supremacy as an ideology to the three of us. He mocked her for that on the on the phone call. He denied all of it. And then I finally said, Pat, you know, two days ago, you were ready to go scorched earth on the floor of the assembly. And now we're scared. I said, who got in your ear? And then it was kind of off to the races. We went back and forth. Um, 
And he started to call me emotional. I know you're emotional. I know you're emotional. You're so emotional. And finally, I said, and again, keep in mind, this is, you know, for me, this was about a conversation between two friends. And I did say, I said, Pat, of course I'm emotional because I had to spend two hours last night with my mother in her room consoling my four black sisters because they're afraid to leave the house or go to school or get on the bus because somebody came into our community and targeted us because they're black. But you live in Orchard Park and you have three white kids and you don't have to have that conversation. Now, again, I've known Pat for five years. It's not like I'm just some normal stat. I'm just some rando who he brought in a few months ago talking about his family. And I hate that they got brought in front of the press at all. But it's a conversation that we've had, frankly, before that, like, in our community, we have conversations that he doesn't necessarily doesn't have to have. And the most disappointing part of all of this is that we know that he knows the right thing to do. It's just that he won't do it because he's more concerned about protecting himself. So after during that conversation where he, he called you emotional, you, you had that. And, and again, you felt because you've had a relationship with him, your you're friends before you worked for him. Yep. When did this turn to the three of you being fired? When did we take that step? So um, I walked into the office and I told our chief of staff everything that had happened on the phone call. He tried to call her and to her credit, because I was in the room, she listened to me and didn't take the call, the first call that he made. Then he called her back and she talked to him. These two then showed up in the office and I said, listen, guys, you know, like I'm probably... He didn't say I was fired on the phone. He said, you know, don't go in there if you bought, you know, a bunch of stuff you don't believe in me and whatnot. And so uh, he came into the office after telling Alyssa that he was coming and not to tell any of us. Keep in mind, I'm the only person he spoke with. And yes, while I did say the team felt demoralized, I could have been lying. Right. And he, I think, had a duty to try to see if that was the truth. She, Alyssa told us that he told her, don't tell them I'm coming in. And she, to her credit, again, wasn't going to let us get ambushed. He shows up at about noon from Albany. And he comes into the office and says, how's everybody doing? And I kind of sat down in my chair and crossed my arms and legs and looked him in the face and said, I'm doing fantastic. And then he gave a speech where he said, if you disagree with my decisions, if you don't believe in me, if you don't think what I'm doing is right, if you don't agree with my priorities, then you need to have enough self-respect for yourself to quit. If you think I'm some kind of coward politician, those were his words, not ours, that were printed in the news, then you should quit. And I looked him in the face and I said, if you're asking me if I think you're not doing enough in the wake of this, I agree. If you're asking me if you use the word black more times in the phone call yesterday to complain about the policy the assembly wants to pass than you did in anything you said over the weekend in response to the shooting, I agree with that. And if you want to fire the first black person you've ever given a job to because they told you that you needed to speak out more forcefully about what just happened here, and I believe I used the words a anti-black white supremacist massacre in your city, and that is what it was, then you can go ahead and fire me, but I'm not going to quit. So you're going to have to fire me. He looked me dead in the face and said, you're fired. Turned to Nicole without her saying a word and said, Nicole, you're fired. And then turned to Brendan, who frankly is the one 
again, some identity politics for the listeners. The one other white male in the office is also Irish. It's openly been talked about. Brendan's name, Brendan Patrick Keeney. Pat's name, Patrick Brendan Burke. Openly talked about that a reason he wears his Notre Dame hat every day. Oh, you know, I know. He, uh, <laughs> him being Irish was a... And don't get me wrong, me he wanted he hired me because he wanted some diversity in the office. And I'm a you know, I've worked in campaigns and stuff. I'm you know, we all do things to benefit each other and that's fine. But he turned to Brendan almost uh like Caesar turning to Brutus and said, So Brendan, do you agree with them? To be clear, there is no them. It was only me who'd spoken. And Brendan, to his credit, looked him in the face and said, Yeah, I do. He said, You're fired. We got our stuff. We walked out to the parking lot and um, I collected everybody's IDs and our keys. I went back into the office and I opened the door and I threw the IDs and keys on the floor. And I looked at Alyssa and said, don't pick those up. You make him come out here and pick them up himself so he can recognize how wrong what he just did was. So that's the story. That's how the three of us got fired and... I mean, if you want to ask about what the news said, we'd be happy to address what was published in that article. So the three of you got fired, but from what I'm what I'm hearing is in that meeting, only you and Brendan spoke. Nicole, you said nothing and got fired. Yep. Was as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. So now you read the Buffalo News article. It gives a little bit of a different story. Just a little bit. What's your response to how the Buffalo News reported this? And how much conver- how much conversation or contact did the Buffalo News have with the three of you? So, uh, Lou Michelle called me as Nicole and I were, funny enough, doing what we should have been doing the whole time. We were at the Johnny B. Wiley. I we had you know we had reached out to our friends to say like, we need you to know what happened because we have a feeling that this guy is gonna, frankly, do what I know he's done to other people and smear their name and drag them through the mud and try to prevent them from getting further jobs. I mean, and so we had to tell people who we knew. Brendan told the people who he used to work with. Nicole told the people she used to work with. And I told my friend group. And we wanted, though, to get this story out. But ultimately, we knew the focus this week was supposed to be on the victims. So Nicole and I did what we thought was right and went to volunteer at the Johnny B. Wiley Lou Michelle calls me as we're volunteering. Apparently, he Googled my name, found my dad, and called my dad at his law office in Indiana, and he gave him my cell number. And I talked to Lou. I mean, I could pull up the call in my phone and tell you how long the call was. I spoke to him twice that day, and I gave him the same rundown that I gave you and the listeners. And I even implored him. I said, please contact Brendan and Nicole and get them to confirm the story. And I told him specifically, the idea that they were fired for gross insubordination is completely untrue. If anything, I gave Lou a chance to call Pat and say, hey, do you want to retract this claim? Because I gave it to him word for word. The whole, he made me slow down and say it word for word so he could dictate it all in his notes. And I had to implore him to contact Brendan and Nicole. Uh, He told me that he thought he had a fair piece, that he really thought it was about me versus Pat. And I told him, I said, I don't think that's true. Because again, the statement that he gave you is just totally false. And um, he said, okay, well, maybe I'll contact them. So I sent him both of their contacts in my iPhone. And I mean, Brendan and Nicole, did he ever, ever reach out to either of you? Nope. He did not. And now the, you know, the Buffalo News is, I feel... Is essentially, they're trying to make me look like I'm Louis Farrakhan. 
when I, you know, from 2018 to 2020, I worked with Nate McMurray. I spent a lot of time out in rural New York. I spent my summers in Indiana. Like, these are the two people who stood up with me so that I could stand up for myself. And yet they're trying to make me out to be some kind of virulent racist. It's just, it's unconscionable. And again, the, the, what they printed was fundamentally untrue. Are you, oh, I, this is going to come across as a bad question, but I'm sorry. Do you expect the Buffalo News after what we've seen this weekend, right? You guys have been on all the local media in the New York Post. Would you expect the Buffalo News to maybe backtrack, maybe get the story right? Of course I am. Of course. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the Buffalo News story is wrong so much as they just didn't provide the full picture. Because well, they, they received quotes from, from Pat and they received quotes from Matt and they kind of, that they did do the, the Matt versus Pat narrative, but I think it's a lot more than that. And I think that the full story is, uh, is broader, uh, provides a little bit more context to what happened. And it's not just a, a he said, she said kind of thing. There, there's three people sitting here who all heard the same things that Pat said. And I don't think that the Buffalo News article that came out Friday morning um, appropriately, you know, covered the full context of the situation. In my in my feeling, what the goal? Uh, let me slow down. My feeling is that the piece, essentially, is to play up on the same thing that Pat said about me on the phone call that I'm emotional. It's an angry. It's I'm an angry black man. Is the goal that they're, you know, of that piece? That's how it feels to me anyway. It's a very pro-Pat Burke piece. I mean, I don't think anybody looks particularly good in the piece because, and again, if you read it, you think about, it talks about me and him having an exchange and then all three of us being fired for gross insubordination. I just mean it's clearly, there's clearly information missing there. Right. And I gave Lou all the information that he could have needed to tell the full story. Well, I, I appreciate you three coming in after what's been a difficult week. And I know we're going to be a little late for Meet the Press here on WBEM Buffalo. But, you know, you, you guys did your research. You, you talked with Pat Burke. You're on WBEN. What is your message? What do you want to be done in this community? What do you want to see done, People conversations people have after what we saw at Thompson Jefferson last Saturday? What needs to be addressed and how would you like to see it addressed? You have, you have the mics are yours. I think that um, in every bad situation, you always have to try to find an opportunity to make it better. And um, I think the best thing that we could do is, you know, disseminate the type of information that we were planning to give Pat for the speech that he wanted to give on Sunday. You know, to tell people that these theories aren't new. They're not from France. They're rooted in, you know, really American history. But also that the fact that there may be racism in America's founding, it's not a condemnation. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to look at one of the least important things that divides people in this country and in this world, take a look at it and have an honest reckoning, and then use that, use that honesty, that radical honesty, as a new cornerstone. Sort of like Alexander Stevens, his cornerstone for the Confederacy was that you know, um, the Negro is not equal to the white man and that subjugation is his natural condition. But we can take that radical honesty instead as a new cornerstone 
and build a country and a world together that leaves all that crap behind. All right, Matt, uh, Matt Deering, uh, Nicole Goliath, and Brendan Keeney. Anything I left out? Anything else you want to say before we wrap up here today? No, I think uh, I'm all set. And I think the the bottom line is that I, you know, you're going to read the article, uh, and if you do, you're probably going to come to some sort of conclusion. Oh, I'm, you know, I support Pat Burke or I support his staff. The bottom line is like, we don't really care. You know, we were <laughs> we were there. We uh, we had the conversation with Pat. We all felt. Uh, terribly about the way we felt his uh, his direction was hen- uh, was uh, trending towards this issue and we believe that we did the right thing and we really don't care what people think about that situation at the end of the day we can look at ourselves in the mirror and and say we did the right thing we stood up for what we believe in guys i appreciate you coming in on a sunday morning and um we'll be following up thanks joe this is Hardline. If you missed any of our interviews, it's available at WBEN.com and the Odyssey app. I apologize a little less, Chuck Todd, after this break here on WBEN Buffalo.